0: What a week, Dominic.
1: Yeah, it's been a lot. And we're actually full disclosure recording on Tuesday before um, we have any idea what might or might not have happened in a vote somewhere on another continent somewhere. Um, But we're not going to be mentioning it anyway. And in fact, we're going to be skipping over some of the gloomiest things uh, that have happened in the continent this week. Of which there were many. Of which there are many, Yeah. So we hope this episode will be at least a distraction from some of the ails of our time.
0: Do you know what? In an otherwise terrible week where I have frankly felt like crying quite a lot of the time, um, one of the small rays of sunshine was a new Flemish slash Dutch word that I learned. contact. Have you heard this word
1: before? Cuddling contact. Is that a thing?
0: Yeah, it's a thing in Belgium. It's uh, It does indeed mean cuddle contact, and it's the word they're using to refer to a person outside your household who you're allowed to hang out with and, I guess, cuddle if you feel like it.
1: Oh, really? I thought it was really nice. Oh, wow. Maybe that's why the figures are so bad.
0: Then. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's been knuffling. I could do with a knuffle myself this week. Oh, I think lots of it's good.
1: I'm sending you virtual knuffles, Katie.
0: Thanks. How are you?
1: I'm actually okay because I had a weekend away in an Airbnb little cottage just outside Amsterdam. We cycled through the wind and the rain so that we didn't have to use any public transport to get there. Wow. And we're in this little cottage in the middle of a field with like chickens and rabbits and swans and birds in our garden. So that was quite nice.
0: Were they all talking? It sounds very magical.
1: Actually the chicken really feel like kind of human in the way that they were talking to us. The swans didn't talk much but there were like 15 of them in our garden which was kind of terrifying. It's terrifying. Swans are terrifying. Yeah they're not okay and I'm in back in one of those phases where I keep having dreams that I'm friends with Beyonce which is a really <laughs> nice thing although also really disappointing when I wake up and slowly don't to meet it slowly dawns on me that. It's never going to happen. Sorry, is this a regular thing? Yeah, it's a recurring dream. It's really strange. She just like comes around for dinner with my parents and (laughs) we hang out and we're just really close.
0: Oh, well, if this podcaster gets any more famous, that seems like something that could plausibly happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't use my friendship to bring her on the podcast because that would be inappropriate, of course. Unless she has a really good take on European politics. Yeah, which who knows? Maybe she does. Maybe she'll emigrate here if the election... ah. Uh,
0: Let's not talk about it. What are we talking about this week?
1: Um, We are coming back to a topic that we talked about a few weeks ago and we promised we'd look at it in more detail. We're going to be talking about the anti-corruption protests in Bulgaria, which have continued since we last spoke about them a few weeks ago, but they do seem to be winding down right now for various reasons. We're going to be speaking to Nikolai Stajkov, who's a kind of key figure in the anti-corruption movement in Bulgaria. He's an investigative journalist and he co-founded this organisation called the Anti-Corruption Fund. So we'll be finding out what's been going on and uh, having a look at how successful these protests have been.
0: But first, because of the general state of this week, we've got a special edition of Good Week, Bad Week. Good vibes only. Here is, what are we are calling it? Good
1: week, good a week. Yeah, I think we did it once or twice before, but it definitely felt necessary this week. Oh. Week. who's had a good week katie
0: uh, well after giving poland bad week last week i was tempted to give good week to the protesters who've come out in crazy numbers since we talked about the abortion ban last week in warsaw and elsewhere um but i'm actually going to give good week to the dutch whale sculpture that literally saved someone's life this week You may have seen pictures of this on the interweb because it was a really extraordinary turn of events in the Netherlands over the weekend. Just before midnight on Sunday evening, a metro train overshot the end of a platform at De Akkers metro station, which is just south of Rotterdam. It's unclear why, but this train terrifyingly shot right past the stop blocks and right off the end of the track, uh, which is suspended 10 metres up in the air over a, a kind of lake thing. Now, in a different universe somewhere, this story has a terrible alternative ending because the train should have just plummeted right off the edge. But it didn't, because of a lovely whale. Walfestarten, or whale tails, is a giant piece of public art by the Dutch architect Martin Strauss, one of several such pieces around the world, in fact. And in this particular case, there are a pair of giant whale tails right next to this train station. They've been there since 2002. And what happened on Sunday night is the train overshot the platform, went flying off into the abyss, only to land on one of these giant whale tails, saving the driver. Uh, thankfully the train was empty apart from them so there weren't any injuries just as one i'm assuming very shaken up driver i mean can you imagine what must have gone through their minds in the space of about five seconds like i'm gonna die i'm gonna die or i'm not because i'm sitting on this giant whale tail it's wild Uh, It's one of those things that you really have to see to understand what happened. Uh, The pictures are truly freakish. You can just see this metro train like balanced precariously on this giant whale tail. Uh, You can find the pictures on our Twitter account, among other places. And I think you posted in the caption, Dominic, this is as close to an example of art like literally saving lives as I think you're ever going to get.
1: Yeah, I'd been saying it for a long time that art is important for democracy and it saves lives, but I didn't mean it this literally.
0: (laughs) There you are, here's the proof. Uh, The architect, Martin, apparently saw started getting calls at like 7am saying, have you seen the news? Have you seen the news? And he described himself in media reports as surprised that the whale tail was able to support the weight of a whole train carriage. It is made out of plastic. But then he is an architect rather than a visual artist. So... Maybe everything he builds is like intrinsically
1: solid. He did seem kind of worried that it might fall down like any moment. So he, I I know they have actually this morning already started the removal process because they're not quite sure how long the whale's tail will manage to hold the weight of a train.
0: But it's done a good job so far. So thank God for public art. I am someone who has occasionally looked at a piece of public art and thought, this is terrible. Um, But I'm never going to say that again because public art saves lives even if it was, you know, like designed in the 80s and is really horrible, could be life saving.
1: There's been this weird element to the story that uh, I haven't been quite able to unpick yet. But in lots of the English language reporting, they've said that the artwork is called Saved by the Whale's Tale, Ah. which seems like too good to be true that that is the title of the artwork.
0: I think that's a headline that got translated by accident.
1: That's exactly what I thought. And I actually even messaged Daniel Boffey, who's the Guardian uh, Brussels bureau chief who wrote about it for The Guardian. And he responded to me saying that he also thought that initially, but he heard from the regional safety authority that that is indeed the English name of the artwork. Oh. I still don't quite believe it, but... um, it seems to be true. I feel like the safety board might have just been like, yesterday, we're renaming this artwork now.
0: Why the hell not? <laughs> Who's had a good week?
1: It's been a good week for books after we received news that there seems to have been a bit of a COVID book buying boom. The British publisher Bloomsbury, famous for Harry Potter, announced this week that they had seen their biggest rise in half-year profits since 2008, which was probably around the time of the last Harry Potter, or is that mad?
0: Oh, I thought it was going to be around the time of the last financial crisis.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The last pandemic. Uh. They've seen profits jump 40% in the period from February to August with books like Rick Brechman's Humankind and Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie edo Edo-Lodge being two of their bestsellers. And it's not just Bloomsbury that have done well. Um, Philip Jones, who edits The Bookseller an Industry magazine, told the BBC that the current enthusiasm for books was creating sales figures that were almost like what you'd expect in the run-up to Christmas, just a few months earlier than expected. And of course, it makes sense that there would be a bit of a book buying boom during this time when so many of us are stuck inside for long periods of time. I know I've read more books since March than I normally would and it's nice to hear that I'm not the only one.
0: Although lots of people have been struggling, I think, to read as well. So in a way it is quite surprising. I think just people's concentration has just
1: been shot maybe loads of people are just buying books thinking they'll have time to read them and no one's actually reading them then
0: they're just staring at the covers being like i can't face this i can't do anything i'm sad
1: yeah one person who did read a book for the first time in their life is a member of the band e17 tony mortimer who at the age of 50 has read his first ever book during lockdown after his daughter set up a book app on his phone. And I thought it was a really nice story. Uh, What did he pick first? He chose a book called Secrets of the Greek Revival by Ava Pola. It's an American thriller, I believe. But apparently he's really caught the reading bug so hard that he's actually started writing his own book. I mean, of course, he's always been a writer. He wrote lyrics for E17, including the Christmas smash hit Stay Another Day. Ah, But it sounds like he's really got into it. I was trying to remember what E17 was. So it's that one.
0: Stay now.
1: Exactly. Okay. There's been more book news this week from Penguin Random House, who said that they had also seen particularly good sales, particularly for some of their long-read classics. Apparently, sales of War and Peace are up by 69% in the UK this year, and the Spanish classic Don Quixote has seen sales rise by 53%. The Penguin Classics director said to the Guardian that uh, they were kind of surprised at how well the classics were doing. They thought at first that during these difficult times people would just want comfort reads like cosy crime or like comic novels, but apparently not.
0: I've gone for a bit of P.G. Woodhouse recently, ah. and that's been very nice.
1: Yeah, I can understand why you'd why you'd enjoy that.
0: Along with reading The Plague by Camus, it <laughs> made for a nice balance.
1: Yeah, I didn't get that. That I'm not that kind of person. I want to avoid. Obviously, the blockbuster improvement figures for big publishers don't mean that everyone has been doing well. And many local independent bookshops have really struggled during the past eight months as people have been dissuaded from going into actual shops and going to high streets. Bookshops have, at, like, at many times been completely closed, and I think in the UK are about to be closed again.
0: Mm. There's a big debate in France over whether they should be counted as a, an essential service or not.
1: Yeah, I wondered about that. They never shut here in the Netherlands. It's nice. Yeah, it is. But then in the Netherlands, nothing really ever shut. <laughs> Uh, so depending on where you are in the world, you may once again be in a situation where you're not allowed to go and browse in a bookshop. And if that's the case, then forgive my activist side coming out for a second again. But please try to resist giving all your money to Jeff Bezos and buying from Amazon.
0: He doesn't need it.
1: He doesn't need it. He's done very well out of this crisis already. Try to buy your books from local bookshops, that many of which are doing deliveries or click and collect things now. And I know it might be a few extra quid or euros or galleons. Is that Harry Potter money? (laughs) (laughs) Galleons. But I think it's worth it. And there are so many alternatives to Amazon appearing online at the moment. I used Hive.co.uk the other day and they do a nice thing when after you've bought your book, they ask you which of your local bookshops you'd like to send a percentage of the profits to.
0: Oh, that's really nice.
1: Yeah, and there's a new, there's another one that's just launched called bookshop.org, which has come over from America, and that's like a local bookshop aggregator online, and it's been a big hit in the US. So check that out. I'm sure there are similar schemes in most countries out there, but um, they're the two I know about.
0: So many people signed up to support the podcast this week. Thank you, guys. It was a really amazing thing to see in a week where, yeah, I've been quite sad about what's been happening in France and the world in general. Um, So huge thanks go to Rustam Nazarov, Ophélie Derrancy, Pietro Miraglio, Yerne Virag, Joseph Sherlock, Man Against House, that's an intriguing name, Man Against House, uh, and Burley Monster, who is a a bona fide EU celebrity, uh, the owner of a hugely popular EU satirical account that basically the Banksy of Europe
1: That's cool. We're going up in the world. Um, If you would like to join that uh, growing troop of supporters, then please head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. We are so grateful to everyone who is giving us a little bit or... More than a little bit every month. It really helps make us be able to continue doing this podcast. So thank you and really cheers us up in these gloomy weeks. It could also cheer you up, making you feel good about yourself.
0: (laughs) You could just walk around smugly thinking, I gave money to the Europeans podcast. I'm a brilliant person.
1: Do it. Please. Time for an interview. And we're heading back to Bulgaria today. Do you think everyone remembers my Good Week from a few weeks ago perfectly, so we don't need to introduce this at all?
0: Yeah, it's fine. It's a legendary Good Week. Um, I think maybe a little bit of a reminder might be helpful, because it is one of those things that, I guess, due to the general lack of Eastern European coverage in the Western media, and because of a little pandemic that's been dominating the headlines, um, it might have escaped your notice that there has been this huge wave of anti-government protests in Bulgaria over the past three months. Every single night, for more than 100 nights now, that might be about to change at the time of recording some of the protest leaders have called for people to leave the streets saying that right now the most important thing is for Bulgaria to fight coronavirus which is getting pretty out of control in the country. And that brings us to a turning point. It's really not clear what happens next. But yeah, we've been wanting to get our head around these protests for a while now and trying to figure out what's going on. Dominic, you kindly introduced us to the subject a few weeks back, but before we talked to Nikolai, I just wanted to double check that we had like the basics sorted in my head. So if I've got this straight, there's a few things going on. One thing is that the prime minister really hates the president. And seems to have been using the judiciary to like go after the president. And that isn't very separation of power Z, correct?
1: Yes, I think so. The prime minister who happens to have Corona at the moment.
0: Yeah, indeed. The latest leader to come down with the old Rona. Um, there's also like a general stench of corruption and a bunch of scandals, including these photos of the Prime Minister sleeping next to a drawer full of 500 euro bills and a gun, which doesn't look great, although he's sort of denied that the photos are real, kind of denied it, but not really. And generally the protesters do not like this government. They think it is super corrupt and operates like a mafia. It keeps giving money to friendly businesses and uh, they really want it to step down. Is that the general gist of it?
1: Sounds like a good introduction, Katie. Good work.
0: Okay, good. I think we're ready to talk to Nikolai. Nikolai stakeoff is an investigative journalist, and as Dominic said, he is the co-founder of the Anti-Corruption Fund, which is an NGO that monitors corruption in Bulgaria and uh, points institutions in the direction of the evidence that it finds. And the fund has actually played a role in growing the protest movement over the last few months because it released a pretty incendiary documentary that alleged that officials were involved in financial swindling. Given that we wanted to understand how corruption works in Bulgaria, there seemed to be no better person to talk about all of this than Nikolai. So we gave him a ring in Sofia. (laughs) Bulgaria is frequently ranked as the most corrupt country in Europe. Is that something that ordinary Bulgarians can see and witness on a daily basis? Or or is it more hidden than that?
2: One of the indicators you would immediately see in all the opinion polls is the level of trust in the institutions, which is an indirect indicator of the corruption. And uh, we have seen historic lows of... uh, public trust in key institutions like the prosecution, the parliament, anti-corruption commission, and so on and so on. So I think Bulgarians have used to this kind of uh, situation, they have outsource their trust in the European institutions to improve the situation and in uh, some magical way, Bulgaria's anti-corruption institution would be uh, magically fixed and uh, start working in a proper way. But it didn't happen. And uh, this kind of disillusionment uh, that we've seen recently escalated. And that was one of the reasons behind the protests.
1: The protests have been pretty enormous and have been going on for over 100 days now. We heard at the beginning of this week that they've made a decision to probably mainly stop protesting in public for now as the weather worsens and COVID is on the rise. Do you think that the protesters can feel pleased with the effect that they've had so far? And do you think there's going to be any noticeable change?
2: Technically, the the main demands of the protests, like resignation of the government and the chief prosecutor, have not been met. But um, besides that, I think the protests that started in the summer, they have achieved a lot of smaller and visible successes. There was a big reshuffle in the government. Ministers were fired, five of them a public discussion about a new, new constitution. And uh, also one of the visible effects is that the voice and the language of the politicians in the parliament has changed in a way to meet, let's say, correlate with the language of the protest outside the parliament. Also, we have to mention that the Damages on the ruling coalition are, if not mortal, if I can say so, but uh, very, very serious. And uh, I don't know if there is a way they could be overcome.
0: People often accuse Borisov's government of behaving in a a mafia-like fashion. And I find this a very interesting word to use about a European government. Um, Could you explain for people outside Bulgaria, why do the protesters compare this government to a mafia?
2: 11 years ago, the first Borisov government was uh, much more diverse in terms of people, in terms of um, political will declared and so on. But after 10 years, the hidden dependencies behind the government and what we call the deep state, the circles who actually rule the country have become visible. So now, as of 2020, we see dependencies Including people and circles which people in 2013 protested against. For example, the 2013 protests were triggered by Delan Tevsky, who is our main politician media mogul businessman. And now, in the COVID times, the biggest philanthropist in donation to hospitals, but still with unknown origin of money and uh, scope and size of business, at least according to his uh, asset declarations. Now, seven years later, after the summer protests of 2013, all these people that were subject and uh, triggered the summer protests are all of a sudden visibly richer, visibly stronger, and with uh, greater political support. One of the things the protest changed is that you can now hear the same talks about the dependencies between the prosecution, the media and uh, big businesses. You can now hear this in the parliament as well. I think it's one of the biggest victories of this protest.
1: Hmm. You have been reporting and investigating this corruption in Bulgaria for a while now, and you've had a pretty hard time of it, by the sounds of things, receiving death threats and very little help from the authorities when that happens. Have things become any better recently because public support seems to be moving so strongly in the direction against corruption?
2: Um... In terms of uh, public support and audience, we as an organization have received enormous support from our partners, from people on the street. I've never been in a, in a situation people would uh, approach me on the street and ask me when the next series are going to be broadcast. Mm-hmm. And that's a great feeling. Otherwise, um, there is a big disappointment from an institutional point of view. The same prosecution, Sofia City Prosecution, that appointed me personally and the Office of the Anti-Corruption Fund uh, 24-7 police uh, surveillance, the same Sofia City Prosecution rejected to investigate who actually made these calls I have received. So we will never understand whether this is an organized criminal group for uh, threatening journalists and lawyers or other non-convenient parties.
0: These protests have put the EU in a pretty awkward position because the prime minister has lots of allies in Brussels. He's part of the EPP, this conservative alliance, which includes, among a lot of other powerful people, Ursula von der Leyen. Do you think that these friendships that Borisov has in Brussels, do they limit what the EU is willing to do about corruption in Bulgaria?
2: Definitely, yes. Um, From a Bulgarian point of view, what I have observed here in the last months is uh, the end of the optimism, Euro optimism of the the average Bulgarian citizen, Uh, because 13 years after Bulgaria joined back in 2007, Bulgarians have accumulated hopes for improvement, institutional improvement, which we have seen gradually Decreasing. I wouldn't say that Bulgarians have become Euro skeptics, but more of a Euro realists because they see and realize that uh, the fight against corruption and uh, the real judicial reform is um, not something they could rely on the European institutions, but on themselves.
0: Well, that was just the cheering up we needed.
1: Yeah, we did promise a cheery episode this week, didn't Uh. we? I'm not sure. (laughs) Not sure we followed through.
0: I guess there's been a couple of glimmers of hope with the whole Bulgarian democracy thing. I mean, as Nikolai says, there's been a few kind of wins in the protest movement. And there was that um, resolution that you talked about, Dominic, in the European Parliament recently, where quite a lot of MEPs came out saying, no, this isn't okay."
1: Yeah, a surprising number, in fact. And it's just great always to hear from people like Nikolai who are dedicating their lives to fighting this stuff, even with some pretty horrible, threatening messages.
0: Yeah, Thank you very much to Andrew McDowell, friend of the podcast and a mutual friend, in fact, of Nikolai's who put us in touch. We really encourage listeners to <laughs> give us guests because it means that we can do less work. Um, so please feel free to, to recommend people that we should be talking to. What have you been reading, watching, or otherwise consuming this week, Dominic?
1: I have been listening to the new podcast from Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders. Oh, yeah. It's called Titting About, and I have found it the perfect distraction this week from all the terrors of the world. Uh, The show consists of French and Saunders talking on a different topic each week and basically just titting about, making each other laugh quite a lot, and it made me pretty happy and was one of those shows that actually was even quite difficult to listen to when I went on my walks because I ended up looking like a weirdo laughing to myself.
0: Oh, that's such a nice feeling. It
1: is nice, isn't it? Unfortunately, it is an Audible Originals podcast, which means you have to subscribe to Audible, but you can do that with a free trial i'm a bit embarrassed that i'm recommending this just having ranted <laughs> earlier on in the show about how you shouldn't be giving money to jeff bezos but uh yeah you d- you can do it for free if you're clever
0: does that make you feel better about <laughs> sending people in jeff bezos's direction i
1: think so um what have you been enjoying this week
0: i've got quite a weird tip for isolation inspiration this week it's a youtube account that counts as culture right 2020 definitely this week I've been listening to Bilal Gürgen a Turkish drummer with nearly half a million followers so I'm quite late to the party on this one um but I came to his videos via quite a circuitous route you know that Polish meme that I got really obsessed with
1: yeah with
0: the cat like grooving along to the drums um I will post the the meme in the show notes because it's a very good meme and everyone needs to see it but just imagine a cat dancing to this tune (laughs) It's so good. I cannot get it out of my head. But yeah, it turns out that the drummer that you see in the meme playing the groovy tune, that is the Turkish street musician Bilal Gürgen. I think he lives in Istanbul from what I can see on the internet. And he has this super popular YouTube account of him drumming. And I've been finding it very invigorating listening this week. And I think I need some
1: vigor in my life. I think we all need some vigor in our lives. Maybe you need to start drumming yourself. to like let go of some of that tension that you've been feeling this week. Maybe I do. Or maybe what you need is a happy ending. For this week's happy ending, I'd like to take you all back to the heady days of late March 2020. Um, remember, nothing much was happening. Life was pretty banal until a tweet of mine went viral. Remember that?
0: <laughs> I What was it again? I can't remember.
1: It was a tweet of a press conference in the Netherlands where the health minister turned around to watch the interpreter interpret the word hamster and which yeah. to, it means to hamster or to hoard um and she did like a little hamster movement and um i have to say i kind of it went completely wildly viral not just from my tweet but from other people's tweets as well And I kind of questioned my own sharing of this video and wondered whether I was contributing to a kind of point-and-stare culture around sign language, but... I have a happy ending. It turns out the exposure for these interpreters has had a really nice effect in the Netherlands. Um, As it was reported this week that the sign language course at the University of Applied Science in Utrecht has seen a huge boom in applications. Wow. Yeah, so it's the only full-time vocational training in the Netherlands um, for sign language. And they've seen 42% more people applying to take part this year. And it's being put down to the public adoration for this specific sign language interpreter, Emma Slaus, and her colleagues, who eventually they started realizing with these press conferences, we can't get Emma to do all of these like three hour long press conferences. And they started like switching her out halfway through. But I think it's wonderful, and uh, a spokesman from the university also seemed very pleased. She said, the Irma effect is very good. But she does remind potential students that as a sign language interpreter, you are not in the spotlight. You do it for others. And she is, of course, right. Not all interpreters will end up being as famous as Irma. But hopefully, Emma's fame will inspire a new generation of sign language interpreters.
0: That's super nice. I'm glad she's been giving a bit, a bit of a rest, though. Um, I've been watching a lot of Macron press conferences and addresses to the nation recently. And it always seems really unfair because there's one interpreter that does him and then there'll be a second interpreter that relays in to do the bits where like the journalist is asking questions Uh and because macron talks so much the person who's doing macron has like five times more work than anyone else it just doesn't seem fair
1: do you think they pull straws before they go out
0: (laughs) yeah it's like oh no you're on the prez
1: that's all we've got time for this week but thank you so much for listening again please go and tell all your friends about it and uh write a review on Apple Podcasts. People don't do that much anymore but we still really like it.
0: Yeah, it comes as quite a surprise because we don't ask people to do it. And we got a really lovely one this week. So thank you, that person. And indeed, everyone who fancies going over to Apple Podcasts and writing nice things about us.
1: It does help other people find us. So I hope you all have an okay week considering everything. And we will be back next Wednesday with another show, hopefully with the world in a slightly calmer state. Who knows?
0: Uh, Maybe. In the meantime, you can find us on a range of social networking sites, including Twitter, they are at EuropeansPod, Instagram, at EuropeansPodcast, uh, well, Facebook, uh, if you just type in the EuropeansPodcast, you will find us, and you can always send us emails, we love getting emails, hello at EuropeansPodcast.com.
1: Bye everyone.
0: Dovistane!